Welcome to the 238th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Beth Pounding, author of the novel A Measure of Light. Stay tuned for the interview. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Beth Pounding, author of the new novel A Measure of Light. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thank you. If someone listening hasn't heard about A Measure of Light yet, how would you describe your new novel? I say that it is about a woman in the 17th century who came from England to the New World, being the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, searching for a new life. And the story of what she found and how it affected her. And then I go on to say to people, this is a true story. Um, She is a historical figure with some big parts of her life that remain unknown. Um, And that this is a great gift to the historical novelist because it gives you some time to, to make things up. Sure. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing A Measure of Light? I do. Um, It started in a hotel room in Toronto where I read an article about the prison farm system in Canada and that the government of the day was thinking of closing it down. And the writer said, now, look what the Quakers did in England in the 17th century for people suffering from mental illness. And they had set up the York retreat, which is, which was a country situation where they were treated humanely. And that made me start thinking about the Quakers. Um, so I thought, what an interesting idea for a novel. And I began doing research. And in the course of this research, I came upon a a bald and horrifying statement about a woman in Boston in the 1600s and what had happened to her. And I was absolutely horrified. I thought, wait a minute, I grew up as a Quaker. I grew up in Connecticut. I never heard of this person. I I was so shocked um, that I thought, and her name was Mary Dyer, and I thought, "I, I need to know what this story is. And that, that's what it was. It was this <laughs> encounter with one sentence. And, and once you encountered that one sentence in the story of Mary Dyer, what, what was your research process like for A Measure of Light? Well, I went online and looked up, you know, I googled the name, and, and there was there, there is information online, but I wanted a biography. And I found one. It was then there was only one that had ever been written, as far as I know. And it wasn't a very good one because it wasn't uh, totally objective. Um, but still, it gave the, the basic story. And there was a part of that book when I had to put the book down and sit there with my eyes closed, just thinking, oh, I don't know if I can go on. This is so dramatic. This is so intense. And then I realized that This is the stuff of fiction. It's that kind of intensity. Um, And so I started with this biography, and then (laughs) my enormous uh, ignorance exposed itself as I started 
reading about this time and place and thinking, I didn't learn this in school. Maybe I was absent that day, but we were not taught this and we were not taught this. And, you know, all these figures that as a child, for example, um, my grandfather was professor at Brown in Providence. And we used to go to this park and there was this statue there of Roger Williams. And I used to put my little hand and pat him on the knee, this big statue. I didn't know who Roger Williams was. I didn't know what he stood for. Um, so all the things that when you grow up in a place, somehow they're so part of the texture of your life that you don't really examine them. I began examining the New England of my childhood and thinking, this is the context and this is the truth. Um, so then I, I went on uh, finding books and calling museums and um, doing really a very large amount of research. Right. Well, I know that sometimes people have this rosy picture of the history of America in the early days of the colonies. But in your novel and your research, you shed light on how brutal this time period was. Can you talk a little bit about some of the elements of Puritanism and daily life back then that might be shocking to modern Americans? Uh, there's a lot of it that certainly was shocking to me. Um, you know, I have the impression that the people in power were of the upper classes in England uh, who had gone to either, mostly Cambridge University, and who had fallen afoul of the theological thinkers of the day, and who had come to this land, and who had gotten a taste of power, and decided that they would um, impose what they perhaps in all sincerity thought was God, what God wanted on this society. And in so doing that, they felt that God was at the top. And then there were the ministers who could interpret God's word. And then there were the men, and then there were the women, and then there were the servants, and then there were the children, and then there were the animals. And this was a very strict hierarchy that must be uh, controlled. So, for example, and there were fierce punishments. I mean, you could be flogged for going hunting on a Sunday. Um, you were threatened with death for... Um, uh, flouting any of the commandments. It, of course, it didn't always happen, but um, children grew up with this sense of, of horrible retribution for um, misdemeanors that to us would seem pretty slight. Um, when this woman got there, she found that the role of women was much more curtailed than it had been in England. Um, men and women sat at different sides of the meeting house. They came in different doors. Women were not to um, participate in anything to do with the running of the church. Um, and women were to be meek and silent and... Um, hooded and um, yeah it was it was very it, it was it, it was a very dark place people were encouraged to spy on one another and report their findings to the authorities um, 
I read something that was very touching, which was that a woman said to another woman, you know, the children grow, they wake in the night um, screaming with fear because of the, what they heard the minister say. And they were horrific. I don't know if you read, I did have to read in school, um, Wiggleworth, The Day of Doom. And it, it describes what will happen to you if you go to hell. And children would... I imagine the psychological implications of, of hearing about about the hell that awaited um, people who did bad things. So, yeah. Yeah, and and you you talked about it um, somewhat in in your response, but in terms of like the roles of women, what what uh, you know what did women at that time face? Well, they had to. Um, I, they had to work so hard. In England, at that point, um, they were used to, if you needed butter, you would, could get it from the next farm. If you needed cloth, it would be imported from London. Um, if you, you know, many things were manufactured in, in England at that time. When they got to, to Massachusetts, they lived in extremely primitive conditions. Um, they cooked over an open fire. They had, they didn't have white flour or yeast, so they couldn't make the bread they were used to making. They had corn that was crudely ground. They had, um, there was, cloth was imported at that point um, because there wasn't a lot of weaving done, but probably it would only come in once a year, so they would have to make do with very little in the way of clothing. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was the husband com- coming in and tossing down the the dock and stripping it and gutting it and cooking it over the hot fire. Um, it, it was endless, grueling work. And then on the Sabbath, on Saturday night, they would have to do everything to do. They weren't allowed to cook or do anything on the Sabbath, but... Um, but to speak of things of the Lord. So on the Sabbath, they on the on the Saturday they would work very hard, and then on the Sabbath they would sit there with these sermons that would go on for seven or eight hours, and um, until it got dark, just sitting there, and then back to work. And then the other thing that was interesting was they were told they must populate the new the kingdom, the new kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth, so that they were to have children constantly, just keep having those children. And I read that the women, most of them were gap-toothed because they lost their teeth um, from being pregnant and the ill health that they would fall into with, with repeated pregnancies. So on top of all this hard, hard manual labor, they were they were pregnant. And on top of all that, they were very much under the thumb of the authorities and um, supposedly under their husbands. Although I think in real life, some of those husbands probably were as irritated with the whole situation as the women and in the quiet of the home <laughs> said, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I wish we'd never come. Yeah. <laughs> but it was pretty, it was, I think it was really tough. Um, you know, and and at what point did it start changing? I mean, did it start loosening up? I mean, did did you, um, you know, in terms of your research, what did you what did you find? I didn't 
to tell you the truth, there was so much to research about that particular right, period right, and about right. Mary and about the Quakers when she went back to <laughs> I, I'm not, a, a, certainly not an expert at what happened right after that period, although right. I know that the Salem, famous, famous Salem situation happened after the situation that I was writing about. But, but I do know that after, shortly after the ending of my book, um, Charles, Charles II came into power and he clamped down on the excesses of the rulers, what was happening. And um, things started to lighten up, I would say, around the 1670s or 80s, something gotcha. like that. Gotcha. But I think we were at the peak of the horribleness at the end of the book, my book. Right. If right. I can put it, if I can put it that way. <laughs> yes. So, so what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories, given your, your, um, uh, your writing experience? Well, I've written and written and written. Um, <laughs> I started writing when I was eight. Um, I really did. Um, and so it, I would say do lots and lots of writing. Um, without being um, held back or curtailed by the thought of anyone else reading what what you're writing. Um, To begin with, I do lots of writing to myself in my journal. I do, um, I think you want to remember that writing is, um, it's like being a child when anything you see is your, Placing to, to make something else with, and that's what words are. They're your they're your toys. They're your things to play with, and you have to remember, you know, things like Shakespeare saying that that the, oh, what was it? The beautiful sentence with a wind bellies makes the sails pregnant. You know, thinking about how what wonderful things you can do with words, and learning that they're your tools before you embark upon thinking I've got to write a novel or I have to write any kind of a formal um, a story or a poem or a novel because then you will feel like, well, there must be rules. I, I had the enormous great fortune of studying with E.L. Doctorow. And the first thing, I remember one of the things he said to us was, um, there are no rules. And he looked at us really seriously and said, remember this, there are no rules. If it works, it works. There are no rules. And so that kind of freed me up to think, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play. And, um, and the other advice I would give to people is to read really widely, like, you know, read all sorts of genres and read a lot. Um, speaking of reading, I mean, have you read um, books lately that you would mention or that come to mind? Oh no! I knew I was afraid. Yes, I, I never. I always draw a blank. I'm often okay. asked that when I'm in front of an audience, and I think, "Oh my God, what did I just read?" But I did just read the most beautiful book, which was Ian McEwan's latest novel called *The Children's Act*. I think it's one of the most powerful books I I've ever read. I think in this book he gets one of the it's like I've never read anything where the human heart is so is so made so visceral that the the deepest human longings and the deepest human desires and sadnesses. And it's a very short, very simple book about a, a judge 
who never had children and, and uh, who starts to uh, advocate for a young man. It's a beautiful book. And I'm also reading Colm Toybean's Brooklyn, which is a, is a marvelous book. Um, I've, I've read with Colm Toybean, and I can hear his Irish accent as I'm reading. Those are the two books I'm reading right at this minute. Um, right. And I, yeah. So where can people find you online to learn more about you and your books? I'm at www.pounding.com slash Beth. I have Beth Pounding author Facebook page. And um, on those between those two, uh, you can find all kinds of things out about me and my books. And uh, I've written three novels and three memoirs and then done quite a bit of journalism. And um, I'm also a photographer and I've written lots of nature essays. So there's all kinds of different kinds of writing to, to look into with me. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Beth Pounding, author of the new novel, A Measure of Light. The novel is in bookstores now, so go buy a copy. And Beth, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was my pleasure. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.